Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. Two weeks back-to-back, Michael. We're finally back in the groove. Let's not tempt fate, Gary. That's true, you could nearly die again. (laughs) Why do you always have to go there? You know, really? Or... Or someone who isn't me could cause a large lawsuit against Grip that will take up a considerable amount of my time to deal with. Many things could happen. Moving quickly along. To things we can actually talk about. Yeah. So, we have quite a lot of opinion polls came out from the IT. Well, I suppose one opinion poll, but it touched on many things. Very detailed, very interesting breakdowns. Uh, I suppose the other thing that... um, I did this week, and therefore I want to talk about it, Michael, because I, at this point, write about one story every six months, (laughs) uh, which is why they're now all absolute bangers. So, (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) So, yes, it could be good to talk about that, about the National Women Council of Ireland and their uh, transition into being a semi-state body. Mm -hmm. Uh, Which would you like to start with, Michael? I'm giving you choices so that you have a a feeling of ownership over the podcast. And I appreciate that. And I don't feel at all patronised or condescended to. No, no, it's not like before this, you gave me a series of stories that you wanted to talk about and I've cut all of them out. Yeah, well, I I wasn't, to be truthful, I wasn't massively attached to any of them. That's how you, that's, that's real leadership and management there. Let other people give you ideas and then give them a choice of only the ones you want to talk about. Let's start with the National Women's Council of Ireland, which used to be... Am I, am I right in remembering it used to be the National Council for the Status of Women? I believe it did. I don't, it, that always reminds me of this, again, just me distracting myself. Do you remember the fantastic comment? There was once upon a time in the days when the church was important, there was a thing called the... What was it? The Council for Major Religious Superiors in our, of Ireland. And the, the head boss guy, he was... A, Little man looked a bit like my father, bald, glasses, chubby chap. He was regularly being interviewed because that was, in those days, that was. And he, he was making some terrible criticism of the government. At the time, Charlie Hawhey was the leader uh, of the nation. God be with the days. And he Charlie was asked about the criticism and he, he responded, I can't do a, char- a good Charlie, but there you go. We can imagine Charlie's voice. I find it very hard to take seriously any organisation which contains the word major, religious and superior in one title. And I don't know why, but the, the, that old title, the National Council for the Status of Women, which we used to be ine- inevitably changed around to the National Council of Women of Status. And that aspect, one might say, has not much changed. Anyway, what are the women of status talk uh, doing these days, Gary? Well, they're uh, transitioning to a semi-state organisation, effectively. Oh, I, th- I, th- I, think, I think, Gary, they've, they've taken the drugs, they've had the operation, they have transitioned. I had always, I think we've talked about how much of a lot of the respectable NGOs of this country are run by state support. And I'd always known that the NWCI was largely run by state support. But I think because I had just looked at it and said, obviously, they're mostly run by the state. I never actually looked at the numbers beyond kind of a cursory, yeah, that's a lot of state funding. But I thought I would break down the last decade of their accounts. Originally, I broke down the last 11 years of their accounts because I can't count, which is <laughs> not the statement you want when someone goes, now here's a forensic look at your accounts by a man who can't count. Yeah. Uh, so I then needed to go back and redo all of my work. So it was only 10 years into the past. Uh, I don't know why. I suppose 11 years has nothing to make it worse. It just 10 years, five years, those are those are good things. So I went back and I looked at how much money the NWCI was getting from the state over the last 10 years, how much they brought in themselves. 
through membership subscriptions and uh, donations and how, or, you know, rental income, uh, which they have a bit of, and how much had come in from the kind of uh, large foreign funding bodies like the Open Society or the Roundtree Trust or uh, the Luminate Foundation that we're seeing become more and more common amongst left-wing NGOs. And it turned out that the NWCI basically, in large, stopped accepting money from international left-wing uh, foundations sometime in the mid-2010s, ah. uh, after Atlantic Philanthropy, Philanthropies uh, basically wound up. They were taking little bits from the, the J. Rowntree Trust, and then there was a number of years where they, they took in nothing. So you go back to 2012, they're taking in over 300,000, and then 2013, or sorry, 2013, they're taking in over 300,000. 2014, they're over 350. And then by 2017, they're taking in 31,000. Now, that's gone back up to about 137,000. They've started to get more money from the Centre for Reproductive Rights and the Community Foundation of Ireland. But in the same period, you see them go from, in 2013, 340,000 in state money and public money to, in 2022, 945,000 in public money. And when I when I looked into it, it became clear that not only had the percentage of the organization that was funded by the state increased, but I was able to pull some of the grant reports they have done. And those grant reports pull down what the money is used for. And what I was able to figure out from that is that over the last six years, 90% of all the staff costs of the NWCI, so you're talking wages, pensions, and maybe bonuses, possibly training courses, things like that. Over the last six years, 90% of that was paid directly by state grants. And that money was specifically ear-tagged to say, this money is for, for a salary for these positions, and this money is sort of like hypothecated. Yeah, it, it was there for the funding of staff uh, directly. Some of it is for particular projects, but most of it, including the, the largest grant they get, which is the Department of Quality, they got over 610,000 from the Department of Quality in 2022, uh, was for general support, basically just run the, you know, run the show. Mm. So over the last six years, it's 90%. But over the last three years, it was 96%. I mean, in 2020, 98.71% of their staff costs were paid for directly by state grants, which is to say they had a bill of over 700,000, of which 695,000 of it was paid by state grants. That. That actually, when I when I read the figures, I have to say that actually did surprise me. I had expected, obviously, that there would be a very large component of state money, but I remember oh, a long time ago doing a far less extensive and far less forensic bit on the funding of of, of the council, and at the time, it quite surprised me because I remember at the time that I think Atlantic Philanthropies was quite a substantial donor. They were getting quite a bit of money from outside, anyway, from large sort of. Mm-hmm. international charities interested in this kind of thing but of course Chuck Feeney's which was Atlantic they, they, that was that was wound up that that finished so then the round tree and then all, the what would you call it the center for the community of Ireland the community foundation of Ireland never heard of it not a clue what that is uh, reproductive the center for reproductive rights which is abortion. American that's just um, yeah if yeah, you yeah. hear what you reproductive rights we could just that's abortion okay fine well, let me put it this way. There are three organizations that give the NWCI money 
in uh, 2022 that were not state foundations. One was the Community Foundation of Ireland. One was the Centre for Reproductive Rights. And one was a, a, a note in their accounts that said Novo Tides. Now, no organisation that I can find by that name exists. But there is a, a crowd called the Tides Foundation, which is a very large American left-wing dark money organization. Dark money organizations, for those who don't know, are organizations which exist to obfuscate the source of money. So if you are a donor and you give directly to abortion causes or to pro-life causes or to whatever your political cause is, sure. you might be required to publicly register that somewhere. Mm-hmm. Or the organization could be asked, where did you get this money from? And they might feel beholden to say they got it from you. A dark money organization exists so that you give them the money with the understanding that they will pay the organization. And then it doesn't come from you. It comes from the Tides Foundation or it comes from Donor Trust, which is the kind of right wing equivalent. The Tides is an abs- Tides Foundation is an absolutely massive, massive organization. Now, they're only giving the NWCI, you know, you know 25 to 45,000 a year, which for them is nothing. Sure. But that, that's where I think it's from. I think it's from the Tides Foundation. And I go into that a bit more in the piece, but there's, there's no need to go into it here. But really, the, the only money they get outside member subscriptions and donations is for, you know, it looks like it's all mostly reproductive rights stuff. So abortion stuff. Sure. Uh, which, which In the context of, you know, the repeal and all that, and then uh, stuff they've been doing since repeal, that would make sense. Um now, here's the question, and I, I don't, it's not really a fair question because you, you, neither of us are sitting on the Supreme Court, these are, or even the High Court, but it does occur to you, doesn't it? At what point does an organization cease to be independent in any real sense if it's getting 90% plus of its funding from the state? Well, I think what we should say here is in 2022, 92.73% of their staff costs were paid for directly by government grants. But there was another 200,000 on government grants they took in, in addition to that. So, you know, it's not only that their staff costs are being built. You know, it's going to admin costs. It's going to project. It, there is more than even the 92.73% would indicate of state money there. And you saw in this instance, you saw Minister Roderick O'Gorman come out and say that progressive organisations who did not support this campaign would have to explain themselves. Now, before that, the NWCI was, like many of the other progressive organisations, saying that they weren't sure where they would stand on this. And they'd probably support it, but they weren't sure about the wording and all of that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But O'Gorman comes out and then I think a matter of days afterwards... They publicly come out in support of it. I think there's an article in the Irish Times. Roderick O'Gorman's department gives the NWCI, in 2022, it gave them €611,000. It was the single largest contributor to the NWCI's staff costs of any organisation. And it wasn't even close. So you have a situation where an organisation is, their, their staff costs are nearly entirely funded by the state, a minister comes out, says something, that minister has massive amounts of control over their staffing because he pays for nearly all of it. And then the organization comes out. I think it's perfectly fair for people to say, that's not a great look. Now, legally, 
I'm not qualified to talk about this. There's stuff like the McKenna judgment. Basically, they said the state cannot give public money to one side of a referendum or the other. I'm, that's never, as far as I know, been expanded upon. I know a lot of uh, solicitors and, and law professors don't actually like the McKenna judgment. That they, It's kind of like um, Roe v. Wade. Yeah. A lot of them agree with the end result, but think the legal reasoning to get there is unsupported by the constitution it relies upon. Mm-hmm. Which was true for Roe v. Wade, even amongst a lot of left-leaning um, and progressive solicitors, uh, sorry, lawyers, in that case. But I think we can absolutely question, you know, on a civic level, does this go against the spirit of the McKenna judgment? I mean, should it be a case that an organization whose staff are nearly entirely paid for by the state can get involved in referendum processes? And should there be a situation where if you were accepting state money, you should have to sit out referendum processes. I mean, other organizations, Michael, could at least say, okay, well, some of our staff or some of our work is paid for by the state. So we've ensured that only these other people whose wages are not touched by the state at all are going to get involved. Sure. I don't don't see how the NWCI can do that because if 96% of your staffing costs are paid by the state, it's entirely possible you don't have a single member of staff who doesn't receive money from the state. Well, I, I put it like this, practically speaking, and it's the McKenna judgment and it's the Crossy judgment. And I was reading the McKenna judgment again the other day, and it's interesting the comments you're making about the, I think the the, the dissent, uh, the one of the justices dissented. He agreed. He agreed that he uh, he didn't dissent about the lo- that the per- that they had locus standi or whatever it is. You know, the right, but the, he he just and he made there was some interesting. I'm not a lawyer, but it was interesting to read it. But it is the law of the land. It has been established as precedent and decisions have been made on the basis of the McKenna judgment and directives have been established on the basis of that, rightly or wrongly. And maybe somebody will appeal it, but that's a a story for another day. But here's my question. Right. The NCWI, the National Council for Women, is actually running a campaign, Right. It's not just running it. It appears to be leading the campaign. But it, it has its own campaign. And we saw that on Twitter and they were there and they had their they had their, their material and they had their stuff. Now, they would not be able to run that campaign without money which was directly subvented to them by the state. Am I right? Or, 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 or do they have a separate pot? Have they raised other money? I mean, for example, what do they get from membership? So in a year... Over the last three years, they've averaged about 37000 a year. Right. And then they might get, you know, 14000 a year in donations, that kind of space. And they do have cash reserves as well. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I'm not... It's always difficult when you're trying to pull this from financial statements and you don't have actual, you know, sight of it to figure out what can be done with certain things or the ultimate root of uh, certain things. Like there is a misc settlement on their accounts that is the single largest non-governmental sum of money that comes into the organization over the past three years they've averaged about forty-five thousand a year in misc income and i have no idea what that is i don't think no one could have an idea what that is outside the organization so they could have you know that money to play with donations member subscriptions you could have you know a six-figure sum that you could deal with here so i would be less concerned about the money they're using for campaign materials and things like that. I'm more concerned with their, their staff's time. 
Right, but that's exactly, their staff are going to be doing this, their staff are salaried, and their salaries are being paid for by the state. And if the state was not paying their salaries, those staff would not be there because they don't have, at least, or they have not had, or they have not sought other sources of income. And if it is okay for them to do this, if it is okay for them uh, to campaign using money directly subvented to them for the payment of staff by the state, well then surely any kind of a fairly clever person running any kind of organization can essentially evade not actually not not running an organization but rather anybody in government who wants to push a particular campaign around a referendum can do so essentially simply by not putting the money through some kind of government campaign but taking a selection of organizations and funding them and get and if you like washing the money through them this is in a it's a, in a sense it's a bit like in the united states the use of uh, you know like super PACs and things where you've you, you have soft money and hard money and in a sense this is a form of soft money so the government isn't spending it so it's unaffected by the, the by the mckenna judgment but at least in spirit if not in because neither of us are in a position to to know or to comment in any reasonable way about what the actual law is if somebody did take a case but it, it certainly seems to be against the spirit of the mechanical if the government is in a position to say okay we're not going to have a camp we're not going to run this campaign we're not going to do that but we are going to provide money for x number of organizations and then they they, they can do it for us at the end of the day what difference does it make except except you argue well it doesn't have the moral power of the state arguing for it and considering the levels of trust that we saw in the Edelman uh, reports on trust in politicians in Ireland, I don't know that to what extent the, the, the politicians of the state advocating for it actually is that much of a bonus. Unless they might have an intern or somebody making the tea, but otherwise, the no, they don't. This is state money, this is taxpayer money. Actually, one thing I didn't bring up in the piece, but I thought was quite interesting, is I, I look back at 2018. And I look back at 2018 because 2018 was the year of the abortion referendum. So I thought, Michael, I wonder what the figure is there. Now, the percentage of their staffing uh, costs that were paid for by government grants that year was 81.26%. Uh, and they only received, and this is, is quite interesting, they were they had a massive, obviously, the repeal the A campaign, um, and the they they asked people for donations for that. They only received twenty one thousand euro in donations from the public. Twenty one grand. That was it. Yeah, that was it. Sorry, twenty one thousand two hundred and fifty six, which is not enough to run a campaign of that scale on. Now, there were a number of other organizations involved. Who knows who paid for what? I'm not trying to suggest that anything improper was done. I just think it's interesting that they didn't get more, considering that they had a very, very prominent position in that campaign, both in the fore of it and in the background. Organizationally, the NWCI were very involved with things, but they were very much there. Well, it's all good fun, and uh, I'm sure they will have a splendid campaign on the back of the taxpayers of Ireland. Oh, there would be. Uh, do, you want to, do you want to guess, Michael, how much of the uh, their total costs were paid for by public money in 2018? Not their staffing costs, I mean everything. Well, presumably staffing costs are 
the single largest, the same with most companies. The NWCI, by the way, is not a charity. It's a company. It has a charity. I think it's called the National Women Council of Ireland Training Organization or something like that. But it's not a charity. This is something very commonly done with charities in Ireland. Charities in Ireland face a lot of reporting requirements. So most places actually have a company and a charity and do most of their business in the company. So if they got 81% for, I don't know, maybe 78%? 78%, Michael. No, no, no. 90.47% of all organizational costs were paid for by state grants in 2018. See, I, I was going on the basis that in the, that they would have been attracting money from other sources. Well, although you did say they, they got 21 grand in donations, which is doesn't really sound, in the year that was in it, I thought that they would have attracted more money from elsewhere. There, there you go. 90% total. 90% total. As I said, I had always known, just from a, a casual look at you know the odd year of their accounts, that they were massively state-funded. Even I had not expected their state funding to be so prominent and so kind of shameless. It also does make... Do you remember the earlier story about them and not inviting government TDs to some of their uh, some of their meetings and yes. there being a bit of snippiness from government TDs? Yes, I do. Kind of much funnier. And we were saying it was ridiculous of the state to fund these organisations for political reasons when these organisations don't like you. Yes. And then it turns out that you're actually funding... Like nearly everything they do, not just, you know, helping them out when they can't get it from private sources. Like you are their, their source. Now, the point I made in the piece, going back to what we we're talking about, is that the NWCI or NWCI um, couldn't campaign for this campaign w- without state costs because it wouldn't exist without state costs. It would simply collapse. I mean, these are people who have an annual cost of 1.1 million and bring in less than 200,000 in private donations and MISC income. They'd run through their cash reserves in half a year, less, a quarter of a year maybe, depending on how it's split, and they just collapse. They are entirely reliant on the state to exist. Of course, it does also make you wonder, maybe for another day, how many other organizations there are in the state that are similarly dependent on state funding? Uh, it's hard to imagine that there are many that are dependent to that extent. But then again, I'm saying that without actually any information. Maybe, maybe there's a, a whole nest of them out there that are basically functioning as semi-state bodies, advocating on behalf of whoever this they advocate on. There are actually a, a large number, and you know, Michael, I generally don't say positive things about the um, uh, Irish Council for Civil Liberties. I may, in fact, have never said a positive thing about the Irish Council for Civil be, Liberties. That's true. But what I will say is that the Irish Council for Civil Liberties at least makes an attempt to secure funding from non-state sources. Mm-hmm. Well, well done then. Yeah. Um, that's something. I mean, that's, you know, a nice thing. Yeah, okay. I'm slightly thrown back by that comment there, but there you go. Well, I mean, you know, it's like if you find that some, you walk outside your door and someone just kicks you in the gut. And then, you, you know, it's the difference between finding out that someone paid that man to do it and someone used your own money to pay someone to do it. Like, neither is a great system. But at least you don't have to think, I'm partially responsible for this. 
Okay. Um, if, if that makes you happier. It doesn't. I'm just trying to justify it. Okay. Now, since we're talking tangentially or not about the referendum campaign, there was uh, some polling in that Ireland Votes poll in the Irish Times, which was interesting or curious, depending on how you want to. Well, it was good news for the, the Yes campaign. It showed a fall from the higher votes that had been seen in the initial polls, but it was significantly higher than was shown in the last poll. I think last week we were talking about it. Which was obviously a different polling organisation. It is. Now, I think here the question is, is this an... And this is on both polls. With Irish social referendums, you tend to get a period before it, the last week, 10 days, where people harden their votes. And up to that, it tends to be fairly soft. Now, historically, there's been an assumption that yes grows much more strongly. It gets to the last segment. People kind of look at it a bit more and then they go to the status quo unless there's a strong prevailing reason not to go to the status quo, which this you know, doesn't really have. Um, it's been very difficult for the government to actually explain why you should vote for this. I don't know if you saw Roderick O'Gorman uh, coming out and telling people that passing this referendum would allow them to bring the state to court if it didn't properly support uh, carers. Yeah, I thought that. Why? Why, Roderick? Why would you say that? Uh, also, the follow-up, yeah, they could take a court case against the government. I mean, because they're not, the government is not the king. But will they win? Well, that's, that's the other thing. Now, you can take a court case for any reason. You're just, you know, not going to win. Um, the general response from, should we say, legal professionals has just been, yeah, that's not true. Anyway, just for the for those who might have missed it, I just give the numbers here. In answer to the, the, the two separate questions, 52% of voters said they would support changing the constitutional provisions relating to the definition of family, with 15 only against and 27% unsure. A further 5% said they will not vote. Similarly, 59% said they would vote in favour of the changes relating to care and the role of women in the home, 12% against and 23% undecided. Another 5% said they will not vote. So, you have 27% unsure. So if you got 27 and 15, you're only up to 42%. And that's assuming that you're 22, you're, all your unsures go one way. In the others, you have 20, you have 35% if you get the undecided and the against. So, I mean, it's looking pretty bad because we're only a month out from the vote. So normally, Gary, in a situation like this, I mean, you were looking at thinking, well, now I was trying to remember which, I can't remember which it was. There was one referendum in the last 20 years, one the not very exciting one. I can't remember what it was. I think they watered it down after. Where the numbers in favour started off very, 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 very strong and then they just collapsed. It was all very strange. And I can't even remember if it passed or not, but I remember there was a massive collapse in the vote. I'm not saying that will happen here. But I do think, what to me, the most interesting thing and the thing that would make me think this is, even though the numbers would suggest we're talking about a fairly straightforward win here for this for the government the one thing that would make me think this is not quite done yet is 
The poll also, I'm quoting here, reveals the majority of voters have little knowledge of the referendums, with 53% saying they know hardly anything at all, and 36% saying they know a little. So in total, that's 89% saying they know between nothing and a little about yeah. this. When you, when you look at it, only 8% of voters say they know a lot about the referendums, which is to say that 92% of voters don't. And as you said, over 50% say they, they know hardly anything at all. And that kind of goes back to what I was saying there about with these referendums, a lot of people are just not political. They get a sense of it. And then in the last week, 10 days, they look into it and basically decide where they're going to go on it. So I think the thing here is that when you put these referendums to people initially, they sound quite positive. And then there are all the issues that are being brought up by people like Michael McDowell. And it becomes a question of when people get to that last period and they pay attention to this, do they hear the this is, you know, good and progressive or wonderful? Or do they hear the Michael McDowell part? Or do they hear the issues with family reunification? And where do they fall on that? And that I think will, you know, if it's the first, this passes and it passes easily. If it's the latter, this fails, and I'd say fails pretty badly. Yeah, I mean, it's something that it's it's a cliche, shall we say, inside the beltway, with people who spend a lot of their time working with politics or thought, thinking about politics, that when you talk about opinion polls, and remember that opinion polls, you're talking to people about voting for particular parties, which is something that they do, uh, assuming they're not first-time voters, something they, they, they have done, something that they do, they have a, they will already have some ideas about roughly where their sympathies lie. Do they come from a, a Fianna Fáil background or a Fianna Gael background? Have they voted for Labour before? That kind of thing. They will maybe have a relationship or a knowledge of their local TDs. They will have opinions about politicians. My point is that they're working from already from a certain basis of information and a certain basis of a temperamental inclination to go one way or the other. And yet, when you talk about opinion polls that are happening throughout the years of a government, politicians or people inside will say, you know what, the trend is interesting and we should be, you pay attention to trends, but the reality is when it comes to an election, people really only seriously start to think about how they're going to vote a month out. That's when people will sit down and start to think seriously. And you can see swings. I, I mean, off the top, I mean, it was an extreme example, but back in the day when Charlie was in the minority government, 87 to 89, uh, and he was being supported by Alan Jukes and Fine Gael with this famous talent strategy. And the government was, oh, I don't know, it was up in the mid 50s, 56, 57% doing fabulously well and Charlie decided you know what this is the finally I'm going to go for it I'm going to go and I'm going to get my overall majority and he dropped like a stone over the, the over the course of a couple of months maybe less dropped 10, 10 points more than 10 points because people said well why are we why are we doing this why are we having election at all government was going very well we liked the government it wasn't any need now, here we're talking about a, a, a vote which is on the basis which is clear from the results of this poll. People have no information. So the degree to which that three, four week period when the actual campaign takes place 
and in the last two weeks when people start to actually seriously pay attention will be perhaps more critical more on more than usually critical and there may be space for more than usual shifts in voter intentions i also think that in, in this case because there is a greater diversity on the face of it shall we say political diversity of the opposition to the government on this issue that that is going to make a, a more difficult campaign for those people who are campaigning in favor of it to find a central core message that will work a clear unambiguous benefit that they can locate that they can sell to the pop to, to the voting populace because i think they're going to be different people people from the left center left people from the right people like mcdool i i think it will be a big problem for them but they're starting from i mean they put it this way they, they prefer to be starting from 59 percent than from 39 percent the size of the yes campaign compared against the size of the no campaign is is profoundly asymmetrical and i mean you know the yes does have many advantages michael i heard the other day that a yes vote is uh, needed to protect the environment <laughs> yeah okay honestly though gary seriously we all well we all we we all saw that how many people outside saw that i don't know but how do you think that that actually goes down with joe or josephine soap yeah i, th I think you can go a little bit too far it's like you can be a little bit you know this is too good and people start to distrust you but i think there was one thing i, I wanted to mention on this in relation to fact checking yeah because the journal did a fact check on um, the false claims being made about the referendum in March. And I was actually quite interested in this. In a way, I'm usually not interested in journal fact checks because there have been some wild things said about, you know, what's going to happen if uh, a yes vote is there and what what it means for this amendment. So, for instance, Orla O'Connor, head of the National Women's Council of Ireland, she has said quite a lot of this, uh, Michael, and I believe she said, what was it, um, that the Article 41.2 gives the state the oppressive role of keeping women for careers, from careers or employment of our own in order to ensure that mothers shall not be obliged by economic necessity to engage in labour to neglect of their duties in the home. Now, that seems to me to be straight up false and not only straight up false, but in direct contradiction to what we have heard from judges on this matter. Well, you, you, <coughs> sorry, Gary, you say judges. Let's what we've heard from the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Well, I wanted to be kind to Orla O'Connor and not mention that part. Who was also, by the way, a lady. And presumably quite familiar with the Constitution. I heard legal professionals may even occasionally read it, Michael. I'm told that in the, uh, in the Supreme Court, many of them have carry copies of it around in their back pocket. It, it is their constant source of entertainment and delight. But when Justice, Supreme, Supreme Court Justice, pre, pre, not pres, President of the High Court, but Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Justice Susan Denham says, that it, there, it does not have that effect. It does not preclude or bar women from any economic activity that they choose. Well, what's the basis for saying what appears on the face of it to be the opposite of that? But that was what I was interested in, Michael. That particular claim, whether or not that would end up in a journal fact check, because it seems to be, you know, untrue. It might shock you, Michael, that um, 
What actually made it in were, as they describe, welfare payments, immigration, and triples. And nothing said by anyone on the S side made it in. Isn't that interesting? It is It is interesting, particularly both on the questions, shall we say, also, by the way, of immigration and of troubles, because the government has not been, or representatives of the government, cabinet ministers, have not actually been that certain themselves that it won't, in fact, have impacts on elements of immigration and are of troubles. Well, we're saying troubles has become this kind of comedy word, but... Other forms of non-standard binary relationship, shall we say? We've heard comments, wasn't it, about uh, family re- reunif- family reunification? Yeah, um, what's quite interesting is they touch on that, and then they speak about how um, a memo was delivered to government about how it could be a potentially an issue, and that you know it might just lead to more people seeking to be reunited with families. And, you know, it's unlikely to impact on anything. But what they don't mention is Neil Richmond going on to national TV and saying it would have an impact on it. Yeah. Which, given that Neil Richmond is both a government TD and I believe a spokesperson for various parts of the government, one would assume he knows what he's talking about. But that doesn't make it in. Only the earlier memo... And I'm not going to say, Michael, that the journal would ever specifically not reference things in order to present the case that they're attacking in the weakest possible form. That would be uncharitable. Yeah. But you do kind of question how they missed that one. What you might say is that they weren't steel manning the position. Well, it's possible they weren't steel manning it, Michael, but it also makes me think that maybe there's not an animus here, but a lack of education. And in that instance, I, you know... I think you've got to question whether or not you should trust these people if they lack that education. I just want the opportunity to finally say to someone who disagrees with me that they have to go educate themselves. Oh, God. Go read a book. And not Harry Potter. Not Harry Potter. Anyway, there, there was another poll. Yes, the, the actual one, I think, of interest was... Well, there was two parts of it. There was the general, where are the political parties now? Who's voting for who? But also on immigration. Where do you stand on it? And it was... I thought largely unsurprising, but it was good to get it broken down by a lot of the characteristics and also by party. It was a very detailed poll, um, unusually for Ireland and actually very good to see. Usually the problem with these polls is they'll say, oh, Sinn Féin has fallen and it will come over a period where something has happened and you basically have to define or divine why it happens and everyone gives opinions. Whereas now you can actually go, oh, turns out a lot of people really, really not happy with the current immigration policies. Really, and Sinn Féin, 72% of their people say they wanted a more closed immigration policy. And 14% said it was just right. 14? Yeah. 9% said they wanted it to be more open. Mm-hmm. And Sinn Féin down 6 in this particular poll, down to 28%. The one I thought was particularly interesting is this. The only party amongst the ones that they polled. Now, they didn't go, you know, Social Democrats, uh, People for Profit, uh, Solidarity, AIM2. They would have been interesting to see. The only one, they only did Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael, Labour, Green Party, Sinn Féin, Independent, and other. The only of those parties that had less than 30% of their people say they wanted a more closed immigration policy was the Green Party. The Green Party, 52% of their voters said they wanted a more open 
immigration policy. To put that in context, 23% of Labour voters said that. And 33% said they wanted more closed. With the Green Party, only 13% said they wanted it more closed. I would be very curious also to get a kind, a proper detailed, I mean, with a real decent sample size, breakdown on the economic demographics of green voters. I think that would be interesting. Obviously, then also their lo- the, 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 the jog- the, their geographical distribution, urban versus rural, that would be interesting. But their, their, their economic demographics, I think, would be very interesting too. One of the, the most interesting things, they asked multiple questions on immigration. One was, do you want a more closed or more open policy? One was, has immigration been positive or negative? And one was, in an election, do you think you'd be more or less likely to vote for a candidate that voiced concerns about immigration? And what I found particularly interesting there was the comparison between, do you personally think the immigration policy should be changed? And would you be more or less likely to vote for a person who voiced concerns about immigration, which is to say agreed with you on immigration. Less people said they would be more likely to vote for a candidate who uh, voiced concerns about immigration than said they wanted changes in the immigration system. So they want changes, but they wouldn't vote for someone who was articulating a desire for change. In, in fin of all, 60% of people said they wanted a more closed system. And then when asked would they be more likely to vote for someone who had uh, concerns about it, only 20% said they would be. You know, that, that does not surprise me at all. It really doesn't, I think, because when you have Fine Gael on 19% and Fianna Fáil on 20 I think you're not far away from the true believers. Yeah, it's just one of those interesting, you know, this candidate has the policies you say you'd like. No, I wouldn't vote for that. Also, I suppose, if you're talking Fine Fáil and Fine Gael voters, they... I don't, did, 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 did we look at this in this uh, in a hierarchy of concerns? No, not that I've seen anyway. So perhaps for them, while immigration is a concern, maybe their hierarchy, I don't know, taxation, housing, or the economy in general might be a more important issue. And they, their position is, listen, we either have to vote for Fine Gael or Fine Gael, or else the lunatics will take over the asylum So and put my taxes up. It's, it's possible and would have been good to see that now. We know from some of the other polling that immigration is now either the top issue or around the top issue, but it would have been very interesting to see that broken down by party. The data for Sinn Féin is um, pretty uh, pretty difficult for the party to deal with. I mean, 72% of the party say they want a more closed system. They are the party with the highest level of voters who say that immigration has made Ireland, um, has been a negative for Ireland. They are the only party polled in which the majority of people said that. 53% said it, may, it, was, it had been a negative for Ireland against only 32% who said it was a positive. You compare that with 66% of Fine Gael that said it was positive, 53% of Fine Gael. I mean, 79% of the Green Party. I don't know how Sinn Féin deals with that. They're also one of the parties that has the highest amount of uh, people who say they would be more likely to vote for a candidate if they raise concerns about immigration. Now that's that that's the real one, isn't it? Well, yeah, because the the only entity which scores higher them on that no regional breakdown, no class breakdown, no age breakdown scores higher than Sinn Fein voters taken as a whole. The only other group that is higher is 
voters for independents and others, and that's 38 against 42%. It is uh, quite quite stark for them. And I don't know how they deal with that because those policies are not popular with a lot of the Sinn Féin higher-ups. They're not popular with a lot of the people they're trying to get to run for them. The more... The people they used to have were Republicans first and then maybe socialists or maybe whatever. They were all... I often found a lot of the old-time Sinn Féin guys more practical than anything else. They had views, but the republicanism was the important part. A lot of their people now seem to be socialists or whatever and then republicans and that's a very different thing to deal with internally and i think it will make Sinn Féin find it quite difficult quite unwieldy to move on this issue in a lot of um in a lot of directions and also i think will make that their, their famous party discipline harder to maintain because you know they're no longer the same kind of people one of the curious things is that there's been bits of rep bits of sort of reportage and bits of noise in social media and about the fact that Sinn Féin has recognised that it has a problem with its base on the issue of immigration and consequently it has been moving to a more, a slightly more hardline position on immigration. The reality is that actually there has been no movement on the, on the policy from, shall we say, officially, there hasn't been any significant policy statement or or, or change in direction coming from the top. I, I, don't, I don't quite understand where this sense is. There's a sense that maybe individual councillors or maybe the odd TD have been saying things that have changed their tone. They've slightly changed the music. They're giving out they're trying to give out a sense that they are aware that this is an issue and that they are conscious that their voters are worried about it. But there isn't actually any concrete shift in official party policy that I'm aware of anyway. I, I suppose, actually, I, I don't think we should probably contextualize this by talking about the, or briefly at least giving the vote totals there are um, in this poll, because Sinn Féin are down six points to 28%. And that's a whop and drop, really. That is, and I suppose it's interesting to point out here that we're talking about their issues with immigration, but Sinn Féin are down six. The parties that have gone up are Fine Gael up one, Green Party up two, Labour up one, and Social Democrats up two. And those are all parties, bar Fine Gael, but Fine Gael only go up one point. So it looks like five of the six points of movement um, potentially went to parties that are you know, fairly liberal on immigration. Now, you can't say that for definite because a lot of the Sinn Féin voters could have gone to undecided, some undecideds could have gone to those parties. The link could not be there, even though it appears to be. Yeah. But it's it's possible that they have lost them, actually, to parties who are fairly open on immigration. And that, I think, is, is a very interesting thing because I know we've gone through it before, Michael, and... I know my thinking on had been that Sinn Féin would get into government and then schism because it's basically multiple parties in one. And when it gets into government, it would be very difficult to maintain that. But if they start schisming now and they start losing some of the more hardline um, anti-immigration types or people who are just concerned with that, and then they start to lose some of the more progressive members because they start trying to pull those back, that that can spiral and that can spiral very quickly. 
if you're in Sinn Féin, you, you can look at this and say six points down. Obviously, that's a concern, but it's one poll. The problem they have is that all of the polls have them trending in the same direction. And we have no sense yet. Obviously, we have no sense of where the floor might be. The, the, the other thing I was going to say was that the prob, one of the problems they have is that if when they have been, Sinn Féin voters have been polled in the past on questions regarding why they have just moved from other positions to Sinn Féin. Change. Change is a big issue. Now, if there is a perception within their voter base that, in fact, Sinn Féin is just something pretty similar to the rest of the establishment parties on this issue, then the, that other that number that you gave regarding would be more would be willing to consider voting for a, a candidate who took a, a harder line or con, expressed concerns about immigration. That becomes a real concern because they're now they're looking for change elsewhere. It's a it's a it's a real hard balancing act because Sinn Féin on the one hand have to look like a normal party. If they're going to get the votes in the middle ground, if they're going to get enough people to come on board for them to be a par the party of government, they're going to have to normalise and they're going to have to look like other parties. But in that process, they can't afford to do that to such an extent that they no longer look like a party of change because that's where a lot of the energy they're getting or they have got in the last couple of years has come from. And that's going to be a very tricky pony to ride. I. Having said all of that, I think that you and I, Gary, have heard lots of people singing basically funerals, dirges over the future of Sinn Féin. Oh, Sinn Féin is a busted flush. Sinn Féin is going down. It's going to keep going down. I don't buy that. I don't buy that. I don't. I think we have no sense yet where this is going to finish. But if there is an election this year, a lot of those voters are going to going to be thrown back to the same question. Okay, I don't want to vote for Fianna Fáil. I don't want to vote for Fine Gael. Well, more Fianna Fáil than Fine Gael, I'm, I'm imagining. I'm not attracted to the Greens or to the Labour Party. I want to change. And we may see them returning to Sinn Féin in absence of an alternative voice, an alternative choice. Now, if something else was suddenly to appear on the landscape that looked like it was culturally sympathetic to these voters and offered them a sense that this was a real change, well, that might change. But as it stands, I don't think these voters are lost. They may be annoyed, they may be pissed off, they may be wandering around, they may be gone into the don't knows. But that doesn't mean that they are permanently lost to Sinn Féin. And Sinn Féin have, I think, one advantage over the other parties that's highly like unlikely to be met people when you talk about this usually focus on you know the money the Sinn, fact that Sinn Féin appears to be much better resourced than the other parties and it is legitimately appears to be much better funded but one thing I have noted just from seeing the various organizations on the ground and how some of their politicians deal with things is that Sinn Féin's internal organization is better than the other parties it's more organized. It's more disciplined. It has more of an idea. There are serious people involved and able to influence things in a way that you don't always see. Like you talk to a Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael TD about their head office. 
you come away with a very particular sense of that office's capabilities. Yeah. Sinn Féin actually seems to be able to do things, and they're smart. So if they notice this, the question is, what can they do? You know, how do they best do this? But I've no doubt that they will consider it and try and do something. They're not going to allow themselves to sink without counter. No, because they are connected. I think they are still connected in a way that when you talk to TDs from the other parties, you don't get the same sense. I mean, sometimes you talk to TDs, you know, they know what's going on. But there are times you talk to TDs, perfectly nice, decent people. But you think, you go away thinking, you really don't get how pissed off people are about X or Y or Z. You you seem to be just insulated in a weird way, in in a way that you uh, you wouldn't have thought of in a game, or particularly or if in a fall TD 20, let alone 30 or 40 years ago would have been. But I don't think that's true of Sinn Féin. I think they are closer still. They're aware of this problem. Now, solving solving that problem may be that may yet be uh, an insurmountable problem for them. It, it's, it's both a case of them correctly figuring out why they're losing support and being able to do it with some of the issues that they put in place. I think it would probably be fair to argue, and I don't have enough internal knowledge of Sinn Féin to know if this is right, that the party let its own perceived success go to its head a bit and started focusing on things which were causing problems that didn't need to be there. So, for instance, the selection for local Sinn Féin candidates and head office's view on how many uh, women should be selected for those and who that had been, you know, good people for the party in the past should now not be selected to run for the council because they wanted more women. Things like that, I think, did not go well and were not needed in the, in the way they were done. Um, particularly not when you look at where they have lost support from, you know, last year to now. Rural Ireland, their support in rural Ireland has gone from 36% to 22%. Yeah. They've also been losing votes with men. Yeah. Um, and the over 65s. So they, they've also lost some in the kind of upper, you know, the, the middle class. That's gone down as well. I mean, they're to be frank, they're losing all over the place, but the heaviest areas are those. Um, and at the same time, we have seen those demographics become more open to independent candidates who tend to be more... Irish independent candidates tend to be economically left-wing in a sort of support for, you know, local people basic kind of fairness sense than an actual economic ideology and socially way more conservative than any of the parties the more religious more more everything and let's face it at times when you read about irish politics you would get the sense it's certainly if you simply looked at the parties and as a, a manifestation of irish politics that there are no conservative voters in ireland that there are no cultural conservatives left but there are. As we talked about last week, the journal has determined that arguing that the current parties do not support a certain amount of Irish voters is far right. And I won't have that sort of talk on my podcast. <laughs> well, at that point, I think we should both go off and get our bottles and our cans ready to bring back to Tesco's and Don's tomorrow and leave the good people to do the same. Because let's face it, 
you don't want to be uh, you don't want to be out of pocket simply by throwing them in your recycling bin like you used to. Yeah, that would be that would be absolutely terrible. I got to be honest here, Michael. I don't really care about the increased cost. As in, I'm no more likely to recycle than I was before, which is to say, I, I put everything I have into the green bin anyway. But I don't care about the cost enough to go back to the shops in which I bought these things from. Uh, frankly, could not be bothered to do that. Particularly if you're like a couple of people I talked to who who did indeed go back to the shops and found that one machine didn't read it and the other machine was broken. I think a lot of the complaints about this, some have a point and some are just whining because it's change. Um, and I will not say which parts are which. No. But one part I do legitimately dislike about this, obviously there's the part where if you have a green bin and you're using it to recycle these things, well, you're basically just paying twice now. And that seems unfair. But putting that aside, it's um, it's this. If you do this and you go back, you don't get your money back. You get a voucher for the store in which you bought the item. Why is that, though? Do, I thought, do you not get cash? No, you don't get cash. You get a, You get a voucher for the store you bought it in from those machines. But I would... For me, the bigger question is even more than that. And I could see that what that's essentially tying you to that place rather than giving you the money and make your, allowing you to make the free choice to go and spend the money wherever you like. How much of this is actually going to be recycled anyway? That's one of those forbidden questions. And how much of it is actually going to end up in some an incinerator somewhere at the end of the day anyway? But These are questions we're best not to consider, Michael. It's like... What are the root causes of, uh, oh, let's say the fact that it's so hard to get a GP? Forbidden questions. <laughs> no, don't go there. Forbidden questions with forbidden answers that we shall not discuss. Ever. And on that note, we will say goodbye and good luck and we'll talk to you next Sunday. All the best. <laughs>